Hey, good morning, everyone. Welcome to church. My name is Matthew, the pastor of Trinity Eastside. It's good to be with you today. Uh, Before we begin, I want to make a quick announcement. In two weeks on March 8th, that's a Monday night, we're going to have our next staff-wide, like church-wide Q&A meeting. So as you know, we're in the middle of a transition from being Trinity Eastside Parish to becoming Emmanuel Anglican Church, our own self-governed Anglican Church. And there's a lot going on that we want to keep you guys informed on. So if you uh, would do two things. First of all, put it on your calendar, March 8, 7.30 p.m. It'll be a Zoom link that we'll uh, have on our website. And second, if you have questions, things you're curious about, you'd like to know about, they will shape what we're talking about. We're going to include them in our discussion. So if you would please put the questions that you have uh, on the link uh, that's in your weekly reader that came out this morning. You can find it there to submit those. All right, so I'm going to read this morning from um, Romans chapter 8, verses 31 to 39, and then we'll pray and then... um, We'll see what God has for us in this. What then are we to say about these things? If God is for us, who is against us? He who did not withhold his own son, but gave him up for us, um, for all of us, will he not with him also give us everything else? Who will bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? It is Christ Jesus who died. Yes, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God who indeed intercedes for us, who will separate us from the love of Christ? Will hardship or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or sword? As it is written, for your sake, we are being killed all the day long. We are accounted as sheep to be slaughtered. No. And all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus, our Lord. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Um, God, we thank you for this really hopeful word today. We thank you for the promise that it gives to us. We ask, Lord, that you would enlarge our hearts big enough today to contain such an enormous promise. Um, Lord, I pray you would help me to know how to even begin to articulate it in a way that that transcends just our minds and our rationale and moves into the deep places within us, Lord, where we find identity and purpose and meaning for our life. God, help us, would you? In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So um, this morning we're continuing our study for Lent or our series, which is from all over the New Testament letters or epistles. But the big idea is that nothing will separate us. That's what we're going to return to every week, which of course comes out of the text that I just read to you. Our text this morning is, in my opinion, uh, like Mount Everest in the New Testament, as far as like, uh, like letters in the New Testament. It is, it is the peak. It's the greatest moment where all the, uh, all the, the purposes and, and reasons for our life and for this season that we're in, for Lent, but for all of life, suddenly is brought into clarity as Paul tells us that what it's really all about at the end is that God takes all things together, all hardship, all goodness, and works it together for good because of his unstoppable love for us. And 
That's what we want to be thinking about during this Lenten season. We want to be like simultaneously looking at our death, looking at Christ's death, looking at Christ's suffering and our suffering, and, and also always through the lens of what is ultimately true and good because we can, we, what it, that does is it actually casts everything in a light of hope. It gives uh, a sense of meaning to things that otherwise could feel meaningless and purpose to things that could otherwise feel purposeless. So what we're going to do today is really simple. This text is way too rich for me to try to unpack it faithfully in 20 minutes. I'm just going to really think about um, one thing today. And that is what this tells us about how God feels about us, what God is doing for us. Um, First, though, we need to get our our bearings. He says at the beginning, what then are we to say about these things? I love it when the lectionary just drops us in the middle of a conversation. Like if you're, you should be asking immediately, what things? It's like the teacher that wakes you up in the middle of class, you know, like, Matthew, what do you think about these things? You know, like, I think they're good. Like, you don't even know what the things are. Well, what the things are is super important because it actually gives, uh, it makes sense of everything that follows. So we need to understand we're entering a conversation midstream. We are in the middle of a long letter, 16 chapter letter. We are in the middle of a chapter in the middle of that letter. And so just our immediate surroundings tell us what these things are though. For 30 verses in chapter eight, Paul's been making one clear argument. And it's this, that God is making all things new in us, in in creation, by the spirit. And that there is an undeniable, therefore inevitable, utterly a certain future outcome waiting for us in God because of the Holy Spirit that will eventually win and triumph over all sin, all death, injustice, corruption, disease. He says at the very beginning of chapter eight that we are now, because of the Spirit, we're able to walk in a way that's in alignment with what God is like on the earth, what God is up to in the earth. So we get to be his cooperative friends because we have the Spirit of God in us helping us know how to be cooperative friends on the earth of God. And then he says that this spirit who lives within us is constantly crying out within us, really loud, deep, guttural prayers over us. And not just that, but the spirit also gives a word to our soul that we can wrap our identity around. And that word is Abba, a a, a shockingly intimate Aramaic word that was used by babies and children to their father. In other words, Paul says that this spirit has now brought us into a place where we have unfettered access to God, like deep, intimate knowledge and awareness of God as our father. The spirit is not only making us new, Paul says in Romans 8, but is actually in the process of making everything new all around us. That every maple tree and marigold, every bull moose and bear cub, every humpback and herring, every uh, peacock and pigeon uh, is waiting anxiously. Because God's going to do something. He's releasing renewal on the earth. It's coming. They're groaning. They're waiting. They're anticipating it. But they know it's coming. That one day renewal will crest the horizon and sweep across the landscape and wrap everything in all creation. Not just people. Not disembodied souls. But real material human flesh and animal flesh and trees and grass. All things bound together in his unfettered light and love. And finally, he says, therefore, all of our suffering has a place where we can put it in a story that makes sense of it, that it doesn't have to own us. It's not that suffering doesn't hurt. It's not that it isn't real. It's just that it actually isn't ultimate. And because it's not ultimate, it fits in a larger narrative in which we find ourselves. And so he says we are able to take even the hardest things we're experiencing and redefine them or recast them as light and momentary Not that they're not real, not that they don't feel like they're costing us everything at the time, but that they are ultimately light and momentary 
in comparison to the weight of glory being prepared for us. He says right before the text that we picked up, he says, for we know that God works therefore all things together for good, all things. Martin Luther loved to add, uh, loved to add to that, even our sins. God works all things, even our mistakes together, even the things where we harm ourselves. He works all things together for good for those who love him, for those whom he foreknew, Paul says, he predestined to be conformed to the image of his son, to be like Jesus so that Jesus would be, he says, the firstborn, the big brother of a large family. And those whom he predestined to be into this family, he called and those he called, he made right with him so they could join his household and those whom he made right, he is also glorified. And so then Paul says, what then shall we say to these things? Those are the things. What shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? There's just this big, ultimate, triumphant yes at the end. Like there is literally nothing that can harm you that is ultimate because God is for us and will make all things new and wipe all tears from the eyes and turn even the darkest things into light and the worst tragedies into triumphs. That this is the story we're living in and we know it because a man suffered terribly on a cross and then rose three days later and he was the first point in everything that has followed since. He tells us what the end is like. Not the moment we're living in right now. Which gets us into our text, which I just want to focus on this one little clause as a sort of setting the stage for what we'll talk about. For he who did not withhold his own son, but gave him up for us all, Paul goes on to say, how will he not also with him give us everything? The tremendous truth of the gospel is that while we are God's children, like all people are God's children in the sense that all people are made in God's image and all people um, are therefore like by creation, his children. What the gospel says is that we essentially grew up and we grew rebellious and we sought to live our own way and we ran out of the house. We ran away. And in the process, we divorced ourselves from our parents. This is something that actually happens. We divorced ourselves from our parents. We changed our name. We wanted nothing to do with him. And what God does in the process is instead he chooses to, to pursue us patiently and gently. And then the New Testament language is he readopts us. He brings us back in. He gives us a new name. We were his children, but then we ran, but then he finds us and he invites us back and we can listen to that invitation and follow it if we will. And when we do, he brings us into his house. He gives us a room. We have a seat at the table. We're invited in as the most intimate and safe of kin. We're no longer outsiders, but insiders. As we looked at last week, no longer those who do not belong, but those who do belong. That's why the New Testament uses language like inheritance a lot. Who gets inheritances? Kids get inheritances. Kin. And says that those of us who are, who are like moved towards God's house and moved, like we get an inheritance. And this is because he did not withhold his own son, but gave him up freely for us. And so I just want to say to you today, really good news for the next 10 minutes or so. You and I, because of what Jesus did, our beloved daughters and sons of God. And one of the enormous tasks of my life and your life is seeking to believe that, to claim it, to base my life on it. And I have to return to this again and again because I will instead find many other answers for the big question of my life, which is essentially who am I? 
Like all of us have a lifespan. I was born in 1980, which means I turned 40 last year. I'll turn 41 this year. Like what year were you born? Between that year and your last year, which may be decades from now, it may be less than a decade from now. The question, like the central question we're trying to make sense of that whole time is like, who are I? Who am I? Why am I here? And the, along the way, what we do is we try to find answers to that question in many different ways. There are three false ways we try to answer that question, and probably you will be able to relate to most of these. One, I am what I do. And I don't just mean like, I'm a pastor, or like, I make bread, I sell insurance. I mean, um, I am like how good I've been. I am my behavior. If I've done well, if I've succeeded, I am in a good place. If I failed, if I haven't done well, I'm in a bad place. I think ill of myself. I am essentially my life's work. And so at the end of my life, where do I find solace and consolation from? I find it from the things that I've done well. Look at my kids. Look how they turned out. Look at the business I grew. Look at the people I employed. Look at the art I created. Look, whatever it is, that this is where I find identity. I am what I do. And if those things get taken away from me, or suddenly my reputation is smeared and no longer uh, I'm not respected in my field anymore, whatever it is, then I begin to descend and, because I am what I do. Or the second answer, I am what others say. This is, I think, the most dangerous, especially today. I am, it's a very powerful what people say about you and me. As we get older, it becomes less important, I think. Like when I was younger, um, like a whole week easily could get gobbled up by like what someone said about me. Now it's probably more like a couple hours, you know, so I'm getting better. But still like the power of people's words to shape my own perception of myself and how okay I am, how okay life is right now. It can rise and fall by the simple comment or even a look of someone. If someone talks about my behind my back, I go flat. If someone praises what I've done, I, I rise to the, the skies. I was talking to someone years ago who was incredibly fit, like, like even more fit than I am, just incredibly fit, like strong person. And he, he shared with me, he's like, when I was little, when I was a kid, someone called me fat. And all I see when I look in the mirror is how fat I still am. The words that people have, they have incredible power to shape and define us. When we answer that question, I am what others say. Or we say, I am what I have. I am um, successful. I, uh, I, I am an American. I have good health. I have good education. I, I have a good family. I have nice clothes. I make good money. When my identity is in what I have, that's fine as long as what I have is working. But when the things that I'm placing my identity in begin to get taken from me, I begin to plummet. And when we answer the question, who am I? On any of those three things, I am what I do, I am what others say, I am what I have, our lives become roller coasters. And you know that, we all know that. Um, that's, that's, what, <laughs> that's how many people in the world and probably even many of us are living on a day-to-day -day basis because we're finding our sense of self and satisfaction and, and bearing on these constantly shifting sands of opinion and success and, and so on. Brandon Manning writes in his um, beautiful book, Abba's Child. And Brandon, if you don't know, is an incredible man. He was Catholic. He was, a, he was an author. Uh, he was a lifelong alcoholic who eventually ended up dying to alcoholism. Never really could overcome his addiction. And in the process wrote some of the most beautiful words about the gospel. He writes in his book, Abba's Child, in his human journey, Jesus experienced God in a way that no prophet of Israel had ever dreamed or dared. Jesus was indwelt by the spirit of the father and given a name for God that would scandalize both the theology and public opinion of Israel. 
The name that escaped the mouth of the Nazarene carpenter was Abba. Jesus, the beloved son, does not hoard this experience for himself. He invites and calls us to share the same intimate and liberating relationship. Christianity is nothing less than a love relationship in which you and I are invited to find our ultimate identity and then to live out of that. As G.K. Chesterton said, it's a furious love affair between God and you and me. And the question I think Paul's text in Romans 8 is asking is just simply this. Do you believe that? Are you experiencing that? Do you believe in God's unfettered love for you? His reckless love even for you. That nothing can separate you from it. Nothing you could possibly do. Nothing you could say. That God's love is always moving towards you. Always. No matter what. When I don't believe that, I end up living, essentially, according to the Bible, a life of illusion. Like I'm not living in reality. Or I'm living a life of superstition. Where I think that like, oh, because I did these good things and now God feels this way about me. And so I'm constantly like, Checking the skies, like, are we good now? Are we good? Uh, I, I, haven't, I haven't sinned in a couple of days, I think, or, or not as big as normal, like whatever. And I'm always, I'm living a superstitious life. Oh, is that why I found the parking spot so quickly? Because you're happy with me. Or we live in incredibly self-critical ways. We're always taking ourselves apart and deconstructing ourselves and dissatisfied with ourselves. Now, if I were to ask you, do you believe God loves you? I know that most of us, because we're Christians, because we're in church, we'd say, yeah, of course I know God loves me. But we live lives of shame and guilt and fear and remorse, anxiety, low self-esteem, self-condemnation. We understand that God loves us, but it doesn't actually impact us. It's like something that is there, but we have no experience of it. Brennan Manning said in a talk once that Jesus looks us right in the eye and says, I know your whole life story. I know every skeleton in your closet. I know everything you've ever done that has darkened your past. I know your doubts, your shallow prayer life, and flat faith. I dare you to trust that I love you as you are and not as you should be. The lie that many of us believe is if I change, God will love me. But the truth is that God loves me as I am and therefore I want to change. Henry Nouwen, the Catholic priest and servant in the Larsh community and renowned Yale and Harvard professor, wrote in his um, classic work, The Return of the Prodigal Son, he says, Although claiming my true identity as a child of God, I still live as though the God to whom I am returning demands an explanation. Can I accept that I am worth looking for? Do I believe that there is a real desire in God to simply be with me? We see in Jesus on the cross that God is desiring to simply be with us. In fact, the night before the crucifixion, Jesus prays in John 17. He says, God, he says, Father, I wish that they could just be with me. I want them to be with me. God wants to simply be with us. He wants to be the God who's with us. For him, it's not a demotion. It's something he's choosing. It's something he desires. In fact, Philippians 2 tells us that Christ on the cross was willing to, in Paul's words, empty himself. Why? Because he considered the needs of others more important than himself. 
that God considered others more important than himself. So he poured out his blood, he poured out his glory, he poured out his beauty, he poured out his power, he emptied himself until he was nothing but a husk, brittle and wafer thin, something to be thrown into the fire. And the scriptures make it clear that when you and I see Jesus on the cross, what we are seeing in that moment is love incarnate. That's how much God is willing to do to be with you. He's willing to swallow the suffering up himself so that it cannot swallow us up. And instead, life will win. God loves you so much that he would rather die than be with you. That's why nothing can separate you from it. He would rather himself die than you die. I came across a story um, recently um, from a sermon I preached years ago, but I had forgotten about it. So I, uh, when Rowan was a baby, he's eight now. When Rowan was a baby, he's our third born. Rebecca was out one night and I was home with the girls and with Rowan. The girls were basically babies at that point too. And Rowan always struggled um, with, uh, he struggled. And uh, he, he struggled to be pacified. He didn't take a bottle. He didn't want to pacify her. He didn't, he didn't sleep well. We didn't know it um, then. Now we know it's because uh, among many things, he was struggling with a pretty significant sensory issue. And, but instead, we just watched him struggle a lot and felt kind of helpless. The only thing that could ever soothe Rowan really was, was my wife's presence. She, she could actually calm him down. But, um, so she was, but she was out this night, which meant I, I had to, to try to, to deal with Rowan. And around nine o'clock, uh, he started to, to get really sort of restless and fussy and the girls were already asleep. And so I'm just walking him back and forth and bouncing him and kissing him and trying different things, you know, everything, the football hold, you just do everything. You're trying all the stuff uh, to get him to calm down. He won't calm down. And so finally I'm like, well, I might as well, <laughs> I might, this is what dad's, I might as well watch TV. So I just put the TV on while I'm walking him back and forth. And I've been watching this thing on the history channel that was like on the life of Jesus. I think it was near Easter. So you know how the history channel always like loads down their programming with Bible stuff. And Anyway, so I'm watching this thing on the life of Jesus, and this episode in the series was on the passion, was on the death of Jesus. And I'm just sitting there with Rowan's little head, like scrunched face, like right next to my ear, screaming. And I'm watching this man on the screen hang on a cross and scream out to his father. And I thought, it just struck me in my spirit in a moment, like how much it must have hurt the father in that moment to not be able to comfort his son. Like how powerless God must have felt. And how tragic that must have been in that moment. And as Jesus cries out on the cross, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? The answer that is in the silence on the other side of that question, the answer is in Romans 8. And the answer is for you. Why have you forsaken me? God looks at you and me and he says, for you. The righteous for the unrighteous. The one who belongs for those who don't. So that you could be brought in, so that you could experience peace that God loved you so much, he was willing to give even his son. God would rather die himself than not be without you. Friends, there is nothing in this life that will shape your experience of it, all of it, more than believing that. There is nothing that will make sense of our life, of this season, of COVID, of hardship, of poverty, of injustice, like that. The work we do in this season is to stare it square in the face and let it work on our hearts so that we can come to believe that truly nothing will separate us from the love of God because God was willing to cross all barriers and boundaries to be with us.
So I hope that you'll come um, actually with joy to the table because though we hold up bread and wine and we say this is the body and the blood of Jesus, um, this is something that God wanted to give you because of his love for us. So let me pray for us. God, we, um, we do thank you. And we also recognize at once, God, that there is something about this that's larger than our capacity to understand. And in fact, I think it'd be easy to just listen and go, well, well, that, that does sound nice, okay. And go on about our lives. And yet, Lord, I, I know that I have personally experienced your love being shed in my heart in ways that I'm like, oh, okay, that's what it means that you love me. And I just pray, God, for each person who's listening to this and watching this, that you would in this moment, you would reach across space, reach through computer screens and radios. And, and Lord, that you would let us know that you see us and truly love us. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.